Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From Black Barrel Media, welcome to the first of two interview episodes about the Black Sox scandal as we wrap up season two of the Infamous America podcast. I'm your host, Chris Wimmer. You've heard the story, and now it's time to hear from two men who were critical to the production. Jacob Pomrinke of Sabre and Mike Nola, who knows as much about Shoeless Joe Jackson as any person alive. This episode will feature Jacob, who is the director of editorial content at Sabre and the chairman of the Black Sox Scandal Research Committee. He's the editor of the book that was the core of this story, Scandal on the South Side, and he's the man who made sure I had my facts straight during the production of the show. In this interview, we'll break down the eight most prominent myths about the scandal, and we'll dive into the discoveries that changed the story in the last 20 years. It's time to separate fact from fiction. Here's Jacob Pomerinke. If I asked you to picture a meal that you could heat up in two minutes, you're probably going to picture a typical frozen dinner. One of those things that might look somewhat appealing on the box, but when you open it, you quickly discover it's less than appetizing. If that's what you're picturing, now picture the opposite. A meal you can heat up in two minutes that's always fresh, never frozen, made by a chef, and approved by a dietitian. That's Factor Meals. Restaurant-quality meals delivered to your door that require no prep and no cleanup. You just heat them up and eat them. There are 35 different options every week. They're healthy and approved for a variety of diet plans. And you get 50% off the service if you start right now. Go to factormeals.com infamousa50 and use the code infamousa50 to get 50% off. That's code infamousa50 at factormeals.com slash infamousa50 to get 50% off. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Jacob, we finally did it. We're at the end of the line. The series is complete. The listeners have just heard the six-episode narrative story 
of the scandal, the Black Sox scandal. So now it's time to hear from you as the chairman of the Society for American Baseball Research Black Sox Scandal Research Committee. Did I get all that correct? Yeah, you did. Oh my God. Okay, good. Good. I, 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 I started saying the name, the, the spelled out version of Saber and realized I shouldn't have done that. I should have just gone with Saber, but I just let it, I just roll with it. So that's probably a miracle that I was able to get all of those words correct in the right order. So as the chairman, thank you being so for so much for being the guiding force behind this project. You and I spoke about this, I think probably seven months ago for the first time. And it's been a long road and we're finally at the end of it. So thank you for being a part of it. Well, thanks for having me on, Chris. It's been a great project and a lot of fun to be part of. So what we want to do today, uh, three things. Uh, first, we have to acknowledge the committee. I want you to tell me about the committee who's been researching this for a long time. And then we're going to get into the myths, the top eight myths associated with this scandal. And then we're also going to hear about the discoveries that led to the debunking of some of those myths. So right off the bat, who are the members of the Black Sox Scandal Research Committee within Sabre? So our Black Sox Research Committee is, is one of dozens of research committees in Sabre that are focused on a specific topic, a specific subject matter. And, and ours happens to be the 1919 World Series because this is a story that we continue to learn more about. This is a story that we always find very fascinating. You know, we say that the Black Sox scandal is a cold case, not a closed case, because we're continuing to learn more and new sources of information are coming to light and, you know, shedding just new light on what happened back in 1919. So the Black Sox Research Committee consists of about 200 people who are really dedicated in learning more about the Black Sox scandal and, and all the associated aspects. This is a story that you know has ramifications in the 21st century as Major League Baseball is getting back into gambling. And so this is a story that, uh, again, it, it never seems to die. I think we'll be talking about this for the next 100 years for sure. Yeah, no question. Yeah, that was, it was funny. I, that, that exact subject came up in another interview I did that, yes, we've almost come full circle now. Gambling was a big part of baseball. And then there was a massive effort to get it out of baseball. And now we're coming right back to, to gambling being associated with all major sports. You know, for, for anyone who's listened to the series, you know, you've seen kind of what the atmosphere was like in baseball in 1919. And, and one of the major, um, you know, aspects of, of baseball culture in 1919 was the gambling and the betting that was going on. This was something that was rampant in baseball culture. Um, you know, you could go to Wrigley Field, to Fenway Park, and bet on games. Uh, what was happening on the field? You know, what was happening on the very next pitch? You could do that. Uh, in 1919, and you may be able to do that again in 2019 and beyond. And so this is a story that continues to have relevance uh, in the 21st century. No question. Yeah, I, I don't know if I, I went too deep into it in the series, but it was one of the really interesting little nuggets that gamblers would just set up shop in the grandstands, in the in the bleachers, and conduct their betting operations right there in full view of everyone. And even though it was frowned upon, nobody did much about it. Nobody did uh, really anything about it. There was very little effort made to kick them out of games or anything like that. So that was a really interesting nugget that I remember finding. Yeah, baseball had many, many opportunities to clean up the game from, from the gambling epidemic in the 1910s, and they chose to look the other way, uh, usually you know, being mindful of more profits uh, and more attendance and more attention, more popularity. And uh, so there were many opportunities to clean up the game from all this gambling and, and some of the game fixing that was going on before the 1919 World Series. And so you know, this was something that uh, the 1919 World Series was not a scandal that happened 
happen out of thin air. This is not something that just came up and nobody knew what was coming. Um, there were a lot of opportunities uh, for baseball to do something about it, and they just chose not to. And, and a lot of that context, you know, we weren't able to get into uh, too many of the incidents, but just one I'll highlight real quick is a, a gambler's riot at Fenway Park in 1917. Um, you know, the gamblers uh, at Fenway Park uh, rioted on the field. They came on the field uh, during a Red Sox-White Sox game. And, you know, they tried to get the game called so they wouldn't lose their money on the hometown Red Sox. Um, so this was just one of many, many, many incidents uh, involving gamblers in baseball. So there were a lot of opportunities that they had to clean up the game uh, that they chose not to. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. I remember reading about the gamblers riot. And that was one of those things It was in an early draft of the scripts. And it just fell onto the cutting room floor, unfortunately, for time. But I thought that was another great one. And there are tons of those. I ran, I read so many of them. In, in my research process, which basically doubled up on, on the research you guys have been doing forever, I was shocked at how many of those I stumbled across. I just couldn't simply fit them all into the series. Yeah, all these incidents, you know, made news headlines and, and they were in the newspapers. And so, you know, this was not something that was a secret in baseball. And the Black Sox scandal was not a secret in baseball either. And so, uh, you know, again, baseball had a lot of opportunities. Uh, Hal Chase, uh, who was mentioned in the series prominently, um, you know, he was the most corrupt player in baseball history and he was bribing his own teammates. He was bribing opponents. And, you know, the, this was something that baseball chose not to do anything or not to punish him. And so, um, you know, we believe now that this is one of the reasons why the Black Sox threw the World Series, not because they were underpaid and mistreated, but because this was a low risk. Nobody was going to punish them for throwing games because other players had thrown games before and nobody had done anything about it. Yeah, they could potentially double or triple their salaries in the space of one week and the likelihood of getting punished was very low. Yeah, you know, baseball officials uh, knew all about this and we'll get into this more with the eight minutes out later. Um, in this interview, but, uh, you know, baseball officials knew what was going on uh, probably even before the World Series began. They knew about the fix. And so, again, this was just, you know, one of many, many opportunities that they had to do something about it. Right. So let's let's set up the the process of going through the top eight myths. And we're going to do that by having you tell me about the, the three major discoveries that have happened in the last 20 years. Can you walk me through those three major discoveries? So, you know, in the, in the 21st century, we've been fortunate to have a lot of different sources of information that have come to light about the 1919 World Series and, and all the related incidents and the legal uh, proceedings that have, uh, you know, we're, we're in Chicago. And so we've learned a lot more about what happened in 1919 through this source information. And one of those great sources was the salary cards, contract cards from each major league team that MLB donated to the Baseball Hall of Fame back in 2002. And so we've had members of Sabre who have gone up to Cooperstown to research the salary information. And so that has put a different spin on this old story of these underpaid White Sox. We know now that the White Sox were one of the highest paid teams in baseball, not one of the lowest paid teams in baseball. And so, you know, this is, again, one of many, many sources of information that has come to light. Um, another one is the uh, Chicago History Museum collection. In 2007, uh, that museum acquired a, a treasure trove of documents related to the legal proceedings, the grand jury, the criminal trial, and the civil lawsuits that the White Sox players filed. And you can go up to the Chicago History Museum today and search through all these documents. There's there's thousands of pages related to the Black Sox scandal that, you know, when Elliot Asinoff was writing the book Eight Men Out in the 1960s, he had no access to any of this. And so we've been able to put together, you know, a more comprehensive story about the Black Sox scandal 
thanks to this source information. And the other one that I like to highlight is the film footage that came out. There was a Chicago filmmaker by the name of Bill Morrison who discovered an old newsreel of the 1919 World Series. And you can actually go on YouTube now and watch film footage of games one and three of the 1919 World Series. You know, Unless you were sitting in the stands at Crosley Field or Comiskey Park, uh, during the 1919 World Series, you were not going to be able to watch these plays um, until this film footage came to light. So it's a lot of cool information and, and new sources that we've been able to you know, help piece together a little bit of a more complete story uh, to tell what happened with the Black Sox scandal. And so with all that information, now we're going to talk about how that affected the scandal itself. So like you said, prior to the discovery of all this information, Elliot Asinoff's 1963 book, Eight Men Out, was considered more or less the definitive story. I, I guess I'm going to use the word definitive. I, it probably was up until a lot of this new information came out. At the very least, that was the story that most people believed. So we're going to walk through some of the myths that were probably unintentionally created by that story. Now we know the truth because of these discoveries. So we've got these discoveries. So let's go through the top eight myths, which was actually part of a, uh, an article published by Sabre uh, a few months before this podcast series began. So if you want to read all these things and a ton of other stuff, definitely go to Sabre's website. You can find a whole slew of articles related to the scandal. So here's, let's start with number one, the, the one, probably the top one that everybody knows about. Uh, it listed as Comiskey as Scrooge, the Black Sox players through the 1919 World Series because they were so underpaid. That's the myth. What's the reality? So the reality is, you know, the baseball was under this reserve clause system. And so salaries were suppressed all the way until free agency in the 1970s. But during the era, Charles Comiskey, the White Sox owner, actually paid his White Sox players um, as much or more than just about any other team in baseball. Um, the 1919 White Sox on opening day had the third highest payroll in baseball behind the Yankees and the Red Sox, because, of course, some things never change. But uh, the White Sox were very well paid uh, in comparison to their peers, and they were actually, you know, making about seven times more than the average American worker at this time. And so, you know, the the idea that the White Sox were underpaid um, and that this is the reason why they threw the World Series doesn't hold up to scrutiny at all. Um, and the salary information that we have from these Hall of Fame contract cards, um, you know, shows us just how much the players were making. And if you read the book Eight Men Out, you know, it. it throws out some outlandish claims about what some of the players were making. It says some of the Reds pitchers were making double what Eddie Seacott, the White Sox ace, was making. And that's not true at all. And we have salary information, you know, salary cards that show exactly what the players were paid. And so, you know, Eddie Seacott turns out to be the second highest paid pitcher in all of baseball behind Walter Johnson, the great Hall of Famer for the Washington Senators. And, you know, so the, the idea that the White Sox threw the World Series because of Charles Comiskey um, is just an idea that, that again, does does not hold up. Uh, you know, we have a lot of new information that that shows that Comiskey paid his players as well or better than just about anybody, any other owner in the major leagues. And so the idea that this was the reason why they threw the World Series, uh, again, just, you know, doesn't stand up. And also connected to Comiskey, though, is myth number two, the Seacott bonus that Charles Comiskey ordered his star pitcher, Eddie Seacott, to get benched toward the end of the season so that Eddie would not win 30 games and therefore qualify for a 30-game bonus. That's the myth. 
What's the reality? Yeah, this this myth kind of has two parts. Uh, the the bonus story is probably the most famous part of this, and one of the scenes, one of the most dramatic scenes in the film Eight Men Out, is when Eddie Seacott goes to Comiskey's office and demands his ten thousand dollar bonus uh, for winning thirty games. And of course, uh, Charles Comiskey uh, comes back and says twenty nine is not thirty. He ended up with twenty nine wins uh, that during that season. And uh, again, there's there's just no basis in in fact for this story. And um, both the book Eight Men out and the film eight men out um kind of changed the details on when this happened some said 1917 uh when the white Sox won the world series and some said it happened in 1919 but there's no evidence that it happened in either year um you know and the idea that charles comiskey would have paid a bonus that was double eddie seacott's five thousand dollar salary um you know it just doesn't pass the smell test at all so there's there's no evidence whatsoever that this happened and of course the other part of the myth is that eddie seacott did not have a chance to win his his 30th game and we know that he did and when you can go up and look the box scores up uh, to find out that he did have a chance to win his 30th game against the St. Louis Browns in late September and he just didn't pitch well enough he, he gave up five runs in seven innings and they yanked him from the game and uh, the White Sox came back to win the game on Shoeless Joe Jackson's walk-off single and that was the day they clinched the American League pennant so if Eddie Seacott had pitched better in that game he still would have won his 30th game. Yeah, even bonus or not, he would have won the 30 games. And at the same time, maybe a, a smaller third part was that he was paid a bonus after the season. It just maybe wasn't associated with this particular set of circumstances. Can you tell me about that bonus? Yes. So, you know, Charles Comiskey did pay out some bonuses and the contract cards at the Hall of Fame um, do show some of the details on this. And so there was this off-contract bonus that Eddie Seacott had agreed to in 1918, uh, which was a you know year ravaged by World War One, and it was shortened um, because of of the U.S. government's uh, work or fight order. And so Eddie Seacott had agreed in 1918 to this bonus, um, a performance bonus. And he, you know, he didn't pitch well enough. And the World War One kind of uh, changed everything around. But in 1919, he was the best pitcher in the American League. And so Charles Comiskey, we believe, paid him this bonus that, uh, you know, was kind of this off-contract performance bonus uh, to make up for the 1918 season. So Eddie Seacott did end up getting a bonus after all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so the number three, this, this is one, this is, I think one that was probably closest to my heart here is as having everything I knew about this story came from the book, eight men out and the movie, eight men. I'm probably like a lot of people. I saw the movie. I grew up in the eighties and nineties. I love the movie uh, and I'd read the book. So this was about basically the entirety of what I thought I knew about the story. I think like most people, you assume when something gambling related is involved, it began with the gamblers. So one of the one of the myth number three is that the gamblers initiated the fix. Hopefully, if everyone has heard the series, they know now that is not true. What is the reality? You know, the the truth is the players had the idea, and it was Chick Gandel and Eddie Seacott who approached the gamblers first. Um, and you know, it, it wasn't their original idea. People had been talking about fixing World Series for years, and just about every World Series in the dead ball era in the early 20th century had rumors associated with it that it was being fixed in some way or another. Um, and so 1919 was just, you know, kind of this this long, you know, culmination of all these corruption, uh, all this corruption in the dead ball era. And, you know, so the, the idea that the players were these innocent figures that, you know, didn't know what they were doing, they, uh, you know, they were underpaid and they were mistreated and that they were kind of seduced by the big city gamblers. Um, again, none of that holds up. We know a lot more about 
um, you know, what the player said. We've got interviews and and their trial testimony, their grand jury testimony. I mean, um, in which you know they talked about their motivations and and how they came up with this plot. And so again, the the idea that the gamblers were the ones that came up with this idea is just totally false. The players themselves approached the gamblers. They were the ones that approached different sets of gamblers to try to get as much money as they could uh, during the World Series. Yeah, I think, it, as I said previously in other interviews as well, as I keep referencing that, I assumed, I think like, like a lot of people, when you hear that a person, a criminal kingpin like Arnold Rothstein is involved in something like this, you naturally assume he began it. He said, I want to fix the World Series. He sent his minions out to do his bidding and, and work with the players and get the whole thing connected. In fact, it was the opposite. It started with the players and worked its way toward Arnold Rothstein. And then worked its way back toward the players after he became involved, which everyone has now heard about in the narrative. So I always, that, that, that wasn't always fascinated me. Arnold Rothstein, you know, is, is obviously one of the more famous figures involved in the in the Black Sox scandal. And, and he was certainly going to make money on this fix if it was happening. Um, but, uh, yeah, even if Arnold Rothstein was not involved, um, there were still many, many other people involved that would have made this fix happen in some way or another. Um, so, again, Arnold Rothstein uh, did have a role, but he was certainly not the mastermind that we've grown up believing that he was in this fix. He was just one part of a very complex plot to fix yeah. the world series yeah he was he was the money man basically a lot of other people did a lot more work than it seems like he did to to promote this whole thing so let's move on myth myth number four harry f another another great moment from the uh from the movie from the from the book that was generated from the book eight men out so the story that most of us grew up hearing was that some sort of hitman or what, what what's the word i'm looking for here some kind of enforcer of some kind for the mob for these gangsters or mobsters threatened Eddie threatened lefty Williams before game eight. And that's why lefty pitched so poorly in the final game of the series. That's the myth that someone, a hitman or an enforcer of some, of some kind threatened lefty Williams life before game eight. What's the reality? Unfortunately, this is one of the more embarrassing mistakes in eight men out. And, uh, the reason is because Elliot Asinoff admitted years later that he invented a fictional character, this hitman, this assassin, that he called Harry F. And he did it for copyright reasons uh, on the advice of a lawyer or his publisher um, so that if anyone used the name Harry F. in a future work on the Black Sox scandal, um, Elliot Asinoff might have a case uh, because that was a, a detail that he invented. Um, and many, many people, writers, historians, filmmakers, uh, used Harry F., um, as a character, as a real-life character. But the reality is he did not exist at all. Um, and the only evidence we have that Lefty Williams may have been threatened uh, comes from a, a story that was told decades later by someone who was a, a neighbor when he was a small child um, of the Williams in Chicago. And you know he, he told this story that, that Lefty had been threatened, that his wife told him this story that uh, gamblers had approached him before the final game, that he had to lose in the first inning. Um, and that's really the only source for this story. It was an article in the New Yorker uh, after Lefty Williams died in the 1950s. And so, um, you know, it's easy to believe that Lefty Williams might have been threatened by, you know, Chicago gangsters. This was a time of Al Capone and the mob um, in, you know, going into the roaring 20s. Um, so it's easy to believe this myth, but there's no evidence whatsoever that this actually happened. And, you know, Lefty Williams, uh, like most of the players, probably got nervous and uh, just pitched poorly, I think, is, is what really happened in Game 8. Yeah, it seems like it probably makes much more sense than a mysterious hitman that nobody's ever been able to account for. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So, you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. So let's move on to myth number five. The next one is that that this story, the Black Sox scandal, was an isolated event. It's, of course, it's the most prominent, but that's the myth that this is this one-time-only isolated gambling conspiracy. That's the myth. What's the reality? The reality is that the Black Sox scandal is one of many, many game-fixing incidents and, and gambling incidents um, that happened in baseball, you know, and going back through the early 20th century and even into the late 19th century. You know, the first fixed baseball game that we're aware of happened in 1865, the final year of the Civil War, um, long before the National League was even created. So, you know, fixed games had been going on uh, really as long as baseball had been around. And so this idea that the 1919 World Series scandal came out of nowhere um, is is a story that baseball, I think, would like you to believe uh, that, that this was a loss of innocence, um, that it was kind of the, the, the myth of baseball's single sin, in the words of David Voigt, a baseball historian. You know, the, this is something that, uh, you know, had been going on for many years. And again, baseball had a lot of opportunities to clean up the game from gambling. And I think it's impossible to understand what happened in 1919 without knowing more about the gambling culture and the betting culture. I mean, gamblers were all over the ballparks. They were in the hotels. You know, players were associated with them. They could find them at the bars and the saloons and the pool halls. Um, you know, and, and so there were a lot of opportunities. And I think the ease of opportunity to bet on a baseball game is something that really doesn't get talked about a whole lot. And, you know, that was something that, again, players were betting on their own games. This was an accepted part of baseball culture at the time. And so this idea that the Black Sox scandal came out of nowhere is just, you know, again, you have to ignore all of baseball history up to that point to believe that. Right. And following up, though, is leading right into that is baseball's cover up. Myth number six is that league officials and owners heard rumors about this potential conspiracy. There might have been some kind of fix, but they didn't really do anything about it. And it wasn't until the grand jury investigation a year later that anyone took action on this. And then we actually found out that, okay, yes, there was a conspiracy. That's the myth. What's the reality? You know, as, as we, uh, talked about in the the podcast series you know charles comiskey knew pretty early on and a lot of other baseball owners did too that the world series was being fixed and of course we've learned about the uh, detectives that comiskey hired after the world series to go spy on his players um you know so the you know he he learned a lot of different details and and he threw up his hands saying he didn't know enough or he didn't have hard proof and the only thing that baseball officials didn't really have 
um, about the Black Sox scandal was the players' confessions themselves. But they had just about every other piece of evidence and information that they needed to know to act and do something um, about the the fix and the gambling rumors. So uh, the idea that you know baseball had had no idea, baseball officials had no idea what was going on, and they had no proof until Eddie Seacott went to the grand jury in September of 1920 um, is totally false. And Comiskey himself admitted years later in an interview that he knew before game one about the fix. And so, you know, he really didn't do much about that. Uh, Ban Johnson, the American League president, had a lot of opportunities to do something about it. And he chose not to do anything until, you know, he he was uh, getting involved with the grand jury uh, establishment in 1920. So there were a lot of different opportunities uh, for baseball officials. and, And they knew all they needed to know to stop this if they wanted to. Right. Comiskey investigated all of his players. And of course, all the players denied having any involvement in the fix. So it allowed Comiskey to say, well, look, they all said, no, I don't really have any smoking gun proof that says absolutely there was my players deny it. So therefore, I guess I can just go along with business as usual. Yeah, it was very convenient for Charles Comiskey to throw up his hands and say, oh, I I don't have enough proof. Um, He had offered a $10,000 public reward for anyone that had information about the World Series fix. And of course, many people did come to him, including some of the gamblers who were involved uh, in the fix to say, yes, the World Series was fixed. Um, But he chose not to pay out that reward because that wasn't the intention. Um, He, you know, he, he never intended to actually reward anybody for knowledge because he had all the knowledge that he needed about the fix again, as, as early as game one. Right. And you just mentioned it in there uh, until the grand jury investigation. That seemed to be the prompting uh, issue that everyone, they were able to finally move forward and say, okay, we, we have to do something about this now. Of those grand jury confessions given by Eddie Seacott, Lefty Williams, and Shoeless Joe Jackson were lost. And so everyone, the assumption has been, the myth has been that the transcripts of their grand jury confessions were stolen And therefore, they were not able to be used during the trial to try to convict these players. That's part of the reason there was an acquittal, because these grand jury confessions were just mysteriously gone. That's the myth. What's the reality? Well, this is, again, one of the most dramatic scenes in the Eight Men Out film. The prosecutors, you know, hold up. Uh, their files and say, you know, we don't have the confessions of the players. And, it, you know, the, the myth is that this ruined the, the state's case um, against the uh, White Sox players uh, during their criminal trial for conspiracy. Um, and there was a theft. So there is a small grain of truth here to this myth. There was a theft of the original transcripts from the state's attorney's office. Um, but this was discovered well in advance, months before the trial actually started. And during the trial itself, um, the court stenographers from the grand jury proceedings read their notes back into the record, um, just as they had done to create the original transcripts. And so Eddie Seacott and Shoeless Joe Jackson and Lefty Williams, the three White Sox players who testified before the grand jury, um, their testimony was read right back into the record and it was used at trial, um, just as it would have been if the original transcripts had not been stolen. And the, the theft itself was by kind of this low-level prosecutor's uh, office employee. This was part of uh, some political shenanigans in Chicago. There was a a heavily contested election in the fall of 1920, a presidential year. And so this was, you know, all part of the outgoing and the incoming state's attorney's office uh, switching parties. Um, So there was a little bit of a theft, but it had absolutely no bearing on the Black Sox trial at all. Right. The trial just moved ahead as if the confessions were the original transcripts were there. So the final myth, let's get to the last one. Number eight, shamed into silence that the White Sox players were 
notoriously reluctant to talk about the series, about the scandal, the series, any of the events. They mum was the word. They stayed silent on all of it. That is the myth. That's what we believed previously. What is the reality? So when Elliot Asinoff, you know, went looking for the Black Sox players and some of the gamblers involved when he was doing his research for Eight Men Out in the early 1960s, um, he encountered a lot of uh, silence. A lot of people involved did not want to talk to him um, for his book. Uh, but the reality is um, he was just one of many writers that were trying to get these players to talk. And a lot of other writers did get these players to talk. And so we've discovered more than 100 interviews, I think over 125 interviews now with players involved both from the White Sox and the Reds in the 1919 World Series in which they talked freely about the Black Sox scandal. Um, so this idea that none of the players were uh, willing to talk, that they were too embarrassed, they were too ashamed, or they were too afraid of retribution to talk about the Black Sox scandal. Again, you know, that was just one writer at one time, but many other writers got these players to talk and talk freely. And so a lot of what we have learned about the Black Sox scandal in the last hundred years does come from some of these interviews. Right. I think you and I mentioned one of them in our seemingly endless discussions to produce this series. We were, I was bringing up Ray Schalk, and it sounded like he was notoriously silent, that he was one of the more stingy players. Now, of course, he wasn't involved in the fix. He was one of the so-called clean socks, if you want to name him that. But you corrected me and said, no, Ray Schalk gave several interviews about this. He was not completely silent on this. He, in fact, gave a very damaging uh, interview right after the World Series. Well, not, I shouldn't say right after, in December of 1919, so a couple months later. What was the substance and, and subtext of that uh, interview? So Ray Schalk, his, his nickname was Cracker, and it wasn't because he was Southern. It was because he was kind of a firecracker um, in temperament. And uh, he, after the 1919 World Series, he gave an interview to a small gambling trade publication called Collier's Eye, in which he named seven of his teammates who were rumored to fix the World Series. Uh, Buck Weaver was the only person that he did not name because Buck's name was not part of the rumors at this time. And Ray Schalk named all seven of his teammates uh, that were involved in the fix and said they would not be allowed back on the White Sox team in 1920. Um, and he got in big trouble for this interview. Charles Comiskey called him in and admonished him. Um, and Schalk had to give a second interview to the Sporting News in which he basically recanted everything he had said. And, uh, you know, he, he basically... Uh, you know, said, oh, I, I never actually said this or I was mistaken or I was misquoted. Um, so he got in big trouble for for naming all seven of his teammates that were involved in the Black Sox scandal. And this is one of the reasons that he did uh, stay mostly silent uh, in years later. You know, he, he picked and chose who he wanted to talk to about the Black Sox scandal. Um, but he did give several interviews. He gave a very extensive interview to Ed Burns of the Chicago Tribune in the 1940s. He gave many other interviews after he was elected to the Hall of Fame uh, in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and so, yeah, he, you know, he was pretty talkative when he wanted to be. He just didn't want to be to Elliot Asinoff. And so uh, the story goes, he threw Asinoff out of his office at Purdue University, where he was an assistant baseball coach, um, when Asinoff came to interview him uh, in Indiana in the 1960s. And so, but he did talk to many other writers uh, involved, you know, about the scandal. Yeah. And several other players had similar experiences. I wanted to bring that up because it was fresh in my mind. And I thought it was interesting that he was he was one of those guys who was who was said to have been silent and he wasn't and it seems like a lot of the guys were in the same in the same boat so that wraps it up those are the eight most prominent myths associated with the scandal all have been debunked by the black sox scandal research committee 
Uh, we hope you enjoyed hearing about all of those during the course of the narration. I really wanted to highlight those in this interview because all of them have been worked in to some extent or another, but some of them I hit more prominently than others. So I wanted to make sure we got through all of those. So everyone who's seen the movie and read the book, Eight Men Out, you now understand what we've been talking about this whole time. So thank you very much, Jacob. I appreciate everything with this story. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me on and thanks for a great project, Chris. Next week, it's the final episode of the season. We'll end the series with stories of shoeless Joe Jackson. Mike Nola has plenty of them, and you won't want to miss it. I guarantee you'll hear some things you've never heard before. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. This story is produced with the help of the Sabre Black Sox Scandal Research Committee. If you want to know more about the people and events you've heard about here, go to saber.org for a wealth of articles. That's S-A-B-R.org. And for more details, please visit our website, blackbarrelmedia.com, and check out our social media pages. We're Black Barrel Media on Facebook and Instagram, and B Barrel Media on Twitter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.